You would think after uh, using a movie illustration last week, I would know better than to try to use uh, another culturally, you know, artistic type. But no, I'm I'm pretty thick-headed sometimes, so that's not the case. Um, so Luke Combs wrote a song. Um, I think it's on his latest album, and he and he and the song is about how many songs we hear come from true life experiences from the artist who writes the song. I'm not going to sing you his song. It is a cool song. Uh, but he writes about how, you know, what what was it that caused Willie Nelson to write on the road again? And he used different different illustrations like that. So there's a lot of songs that tell stories. I mean, most of us understand that. Some of them are not good. Christy Aguilera wrote a song a few years ago about being abused by her father. Um, it was a hit song, but it told the story of what it was like to be raised in that situation. Um, sometimes some of those songs, YouTube did a song years ago, Bloody Sunday, talking about the, the shooting and the, when the British troops opened fire on unarmed protesters in Northern Ireland back in 1970. Um, I, I could go on and on and on. A lot of songs tell the story. Sometimes they're autobiographical. Uh, sometimes they just tell a relevant story about something that's gone on in the culture, and those are usually the best songs, okay? Those are the ones that I find a connection point uh, pretty easily. The Psalms, many of the Psalms are that way, and I read one earlier to you that David wrote, a song that David wrote, a psalm that David wrote in regard to what we're going to see this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 22. He actually wrote a couple of psalms, songs, if you will, that go along with this event in 1 Samuel 22. Turn to Psalm 142. We're going to take just a minute to look at these two psalms before we actually look at the text in 1 Samuel 22. Psalm 142. Again, it says, A mascal of David, um, this musical term, when he was in the cave, a prayer. Now, this one could be Related to 1 Samuel 22, could be related to 1 Samuel 24. Most folks say it's related to 1 Samuel 22. Listen to what David writes as he's in this, this cave, okay? Now, it's easy for us to, to take this cave and make it a metaphor about life, and there's, there's some accuracy in that. There's some relevancy to, to doing that. I think you have to be careful sometimes with that regard. Um, you know, for me to preach a sermon that says we all find ourselves in a cave... That would be relevant, and that would be true to some extent, but I think that would miss some of the point from 1 Samuel 22. But David writes from that perspective, and listen to his heart's cry. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. So with my voice, that means literally he's speaking this. He's saying, with my voice, verbally, out loud, I'm crying out to the Lord. There's just a heart cry there that comes out verbally. He says, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry out to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me. For you deal bountifully with me. David in 1 Samuel 22 is literally bottomed out. The geographical setting for this cave is in that just rocky crags and difficult area there. Um, in part of, actually it's outside of Judah. He will be called to go back to his home country or his home territory. He's on the run because the king he serves wants to kill him. And, and he's, he understands this. But he doesn't really understand why. We've seen that before in the chapters that lead up to this. He has had to flee his own home. He's not safe there with his wife. He's had to flee his place of service, the king's court. He's not safe there. 
He has been on the run and his friends have had to leave him. Jonathan has had to leave him. He's had to leave his spiritual mentor in Samuel. He couldn't be with him even in that place of worship. He's not safe among his own people in Nob. And then when he tries to run to the enemy, to the Philistines, he's not safe there as well. So David is on the run. And he finds himself in 1 Samuel 22 with nowhere else to go. And he's hiding in this cave, in this wilderness place. And you heard what he said in Psalm 142. With my voice I cry out. I plead for mercy. My enemies are stronger than me. And so there's a reality here that David recognizes. Bring me out of this prison, he says, and I will give thanks to your name. He's alone and he's desperate. But listen, he's prayerful. He's not at the end in the sense that he just caves in on himself. He's prayerful. And humanly speaking, at least at the beginning of chapter 22 in 1 Samuel, he's alone. Now, it doesn't stay that way for long. But even there, God is with him. God is present there. He recognizes that. Look back at Psalm 42. I'm sorry, Psalm 57. I was reading Psalm 42 earlier this morning. Psalm 57. You hear this same thing. I read it just a minute ago. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. I love what it says there in verse 1. The heading says David is in the cave. But where does David say he is? Under God's wings. I love that. I'm in the shadow of your wings. It's there that I take refuge. I cry out to God most high. It's the only place in the Bible we see this term used for God. And it literally means his elevated place, his place above us, above the world, God most high. But this God most high is not removed from us. In verse 3, he sends down from heaven to save. He sends forth his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David recognizes how bad it is for him in verse 4. The midst of lions, fiery beasts, the children of men are there with their spears and arrows. They're attacking him up close from far away and their tongues are cutting him. He's in a dark place. Literally, figuratively, personally, he's in this dark place. And I love the fact that there's humility there. God, I recognize I can't get myself out of this. I love the fact that there's confidence in that. God, you alone can save me. I'm crying out to you for refuge. I could could preach just out of Psalm 57. I'm not going to. But it's the context. It's just this perspective. It's the song that David wrote. From this position. And he says, my heart is steadfast. How can he say that? Well, look at the passage. Look at Psalm, look at 1 Samuel 22. There's this contrast that just leaps off the pages in this section of 1 Samuel. And, and as David is in this cave and in the darkness there. There's going to be a contrast all the way through this between David and Saul. So David may be in a dark place as far as the cave goes. Saul is in the darkness and depravity of his own sin and his own soul. And it is deep, as we'll see. It is as deep as any picture of that that we find in the Scriptures. So there's this picture of that. David is on the run. Saul is in complete ruin. And that's seen here for us. One king is trusting in the Lord and crying out to him. Another king is trusting no one and tries to kill. I'm reminded of the picture of the Antichrist that we have in the New Testament. I'm reminded of Jesus' words to us that the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, talking about the devil. And, And we see this embodied, if you will, in Saul here. One king receives word from the Lord in this passage and follows it. The other one fulfills the word of the Lord, even unwittingly, that God had spoken earlier. So it's just an amazing picture of contrast here. Now, what we often do when we look at these narratives in the Old Testament and indeed in the New Testament, we say, I want to be more like David and less like Saul, right? And remember when we studied David on the field of battle with Goliath, we all want to be brave like little David, but, but th- that's the wrong identity for us. And in this passage, it's not that we want to be more like David and less like Saul. That's good. 
But the question in this passage is, who is your king? Which king would you rather submit to? Because in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Now, leading up to that point, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to one king or the other. So your king is either king of the universe, the sovereign king, the Lord Jesus, or your king is someone or something else. And so the question here is, what king is it that I want to serve? What king is it that I want leading me? Who would I want as my king? And that's the contrast that we see here. So let's look at the passage beginning in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there. So he, he, he's leaving the king of Gath and he's leaving the, the, the region there of the Philistines. He's leaving Saul's hometown of Gath. He departed from there and he escaped. I hope you'll go through this this section of 1 Samuel. And I've gone through and I've underlined every time that it says David rose and fled, David was afraid, or David escaped. Now, it only says he was afraid one time, but it says he rose and fled several times. So it says here, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down from there. Excuse me, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah in Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. So let's, let's take a look at those, those five verses and just see what we see there first, okay? So a contrast. Here is David the king that is on the run. But he is a king, anointed, yet not yet on the throne. He is a king who seems to be welcoming, welcoming to the weary, welcoming to the distressed, even to his own family. He is a king who is who is bringing them to himself. And these words here that describe what's going on and who's there in that cave are this is like this is pretty mob. This is a what kind of mob is this, David, that you're gathering around you here? The first thing that we see there is this description. First, his brothers and his father's house come to him there. Why would that happen? Well, again, the the political framework for the day is you get rid of everybody who might have claim to your throne. And David is being pursued, and so his family would be pursued as well. And so his father and his mother and his brothers, I love that. I think his probably his oldest brother was there who pretty much, you know, wrung him out there on the field before he went on the field with Goliath. His brothers are there with him there in that cave with him. We'll see in just a minute his care for them and his desire to see them protected. And then it says everyone who was in distress or in debt or who was bitter in soul. That the idea of distressed is just pressed in. They're under pressure. Things are not going well for them. There's no indication that it's because Saul has caused it, but there's an identity here. They recognize in David something that kind of compels them to come to him. There are debtors there. Again, we don't know why they're in debt, but in the culture of the day, if you're in debt and you cannot pay it, you go into slavery. So they're under pressure. And then there's those that are just bitter, bitter in soul, harboring some kind of grievance. Somehow they're discontented. And 400 or so show up and throw their lot in with David. And he becomes their commander. And let's not think for a second that he's trying to raise up an army to overthrow Saul. Okay, because that we'll see that is not David's heart. That is not his desire. And that wouldn't be a very good military strategy with this crowd. I mean, it's just not an impressive army that's gathering here around David. But they gather to him. And he becomes their commander. And it is a picture, if you will. I believe it just points us ahead 
to, to this Jesus, son of David, who is coming? This son of David who would be just raked over the coals by the Pharisees? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Does he not have any better taste than who he hangs out with? Remember Jesus' answer? He said that those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So Jesus was known to be reclining at the table with tax collectors and sinners. Unless we want to elevate ourselves above where we should, just remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He writes this in verses 26 through 29. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Now, he's not saying we're stupid. He's just saying we're not measuring up to what the world would say is a picture of wisdom. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. From a practical standpoint, it makes no sense that anyone would want to run to David in this place and unite with him. And in the world's eyes, it makes no sense that we'd want to run to Jesus. But we're going to see that Jesus is the king who welcomes us, who promises us that if we will come to him, we will find rest for our souls. And you know what else is cool about this whole scene that we see here in this first part of it? Back in Psalm 57, it said, David says, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. In the Hebrew, that fulfills his purpose for me is is the same idea that we get in Philippians later on in chapter 1, where he says, I'm sure of this. That he who will begin a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. In the Hebrew, that word means God just settles it. He settles it. He brings to the end what he has purposed from the beginning. And David can say, as he is in hiding with these other 400 people who are bitter and distressed and in debt, with his mom and his dad and his brothers who are all fleeing for their lives, he can say, this is right in the middle of God's purpose for me. God will fulfill his purpose for me. That's just a really good reminder for us. Here's here's the bottom line David sees there. God is sovereign over this and I'm going to trust him. So there's a king who is on the run but welcoming those who would come to him. And here's a king who is intent on protecting his family, seeing to the well-being of his family. There's a contrast here. Do you see that? What was it Saul was willing to do with his family? Well, he's already tried to nail his son up against the wall with a spear. He's already finagled his daughters into marriage relationships that will further his kingdom. Saul is willing to betray his family and do whatever he needs to do to protect himself and his standing. And here's David, who brings in his mother and father, leaves that place of protection, that cave, and takes them to the king of Moab and entrust them to his protection. Does that ring a bell at all with you? Does Moab and David, it should bring a connection because before we got to 1 Samuel, we were in Judges. And before we got to Judges, we took a couple of weeks and looked at Ruth. And Ruth ends this way. Remember Ruth, just this forlorn, forsaken, hopeless woman? Who is taken into covenant love by Boaz and has a, has a child. Remember who that child is in, in, in Ruth 4 verse 18? These are the generations of Perez. Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salman. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. My point in that, David's great-great-grandmother was Ruth, a Moabitess. There's a family connection here. There's a bloodline connection here. Just the beauty of God's providence, church, let's not miss that. 
that God just works these things through generation to generation to generation. And David is providing for his parents, parents by entrusting them to this king. So here's a king who provides for his family. Here's a king who is welcoming to those who would come. And here's also a king who is led by the Lord. This strange character comes on the scene, and we will see him later on in David's life. He left his folks with the king of Moab. They stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. There's no real consensus on how long that is. Is this this whole season of David's life? I think it probably is. And then this prophet named Gad said to David in verse 5, he just comes out of nowhere and says, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. No place, no, no Bible map that I have seen really shows us where the forest of Hereth is. But the consensus is it is back in the land of Judah. And here's what's significant about that. One commentator said this. Twice David has sought to secure his position by moving outside of the promised land. Away from Judah. Away from the land of of Israel. But on neither occasion has he been allowed to remain there. David is the covenant king and he accepts the prophetic counsel, this, this commentator said, by leaving a secure position to go back home, to go back to the land of Judah. So David is the anointed king of Judah. He's had to flee and find refuge outside of Judah. And here this prophet comes and says, go back there. And so he does. And what is significant about that is this word from God comes to God's anointed. And again, there is a contrast here. You remember what happened when little Samuel was there with Eli? And it said the word of the Lord was rare in those days. And Samuel is raised up as a prophet. And the word of the Lord is not rare anymore. Well, the word of the Lord is still rare in Solomon's court. Excuse me, in Saul's court. Because he walked away from Samuel. He left the prophet of God. And the spirit of God left him. And Saul's not hearing from God. But David is. And I love that picture. David has this prophet as his counselor. Who's Saul listening to? His own messed up heart. That's his counselor. His own messed up dark mind and dark heart. Which brings us to the next section. Verse 8. Follow along with me. Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all of his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me. Or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day? Do you hear that? Oh my word, listen to the darkness. Listen to the desperation of what's going on in Saul's heart there. So there's this contrast here. There's a king that's running for his life yet trusting in God. And there's a king who is sitting under a tree with what? With his spear. He's always there with his spear. And his cronies. And he's up high on this place, sitting under this shade tree. But he's very much alone. He's very much in darkness. And he's very much in silence as far as hearing anything that that really matters. You know, David has this prophet speaking into his heart. And Saul has his own heart speaking to himself. And it is not a good place. So here is Saul. David's been discovered. Someone has told David what's going on, and he's sitting there with his servants. So here's this king surrounded by his cronies. And that's the reason I, work, I use that is notice what it says there. Saul turns and addresses them, and it's not an encouraging word. He's not wanting to see how well they're doing. He is, he is just in such a dark place. He turns around and says, Here now, people of Benjamin. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. 
What a coincidence that all of his officers and all of his, you know, all of these administrators, all these people standing around him are from the family of Benjamin. I, I, I didn't take the time to study the connection, but I was just reminded. In fact, it came to me really early this morning. I was just sitting on the couch kind of praying. And back in Genesis chapter 49, remember when, when Jacob is there giving all of his sons a blessing? The last blessing goes to, to Benjamin, and it's not much of a blessing. To his son Benjamin, he says, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring his prey, and at evening... Dividing his spoil. The people wanted a king like the nations. And Samuel agreed under God's direction to give them a king like the nations. And you remember one of the characteristics of that king? It says back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. So this is political payoff. Saul has taken from all the other tribes and given to his family members. And he wants them to remember it at this particular time. So these are cronies that he's bought off. Relationships that he's taking advantage of. He's surrounded by his cronies. But it's also a picture of a king that is just swimming deep in self-pity and conspiracy theories. It's amazing. So David's hearing from a prophet... Saul's hearing from his own echo chamber, you know. Saul didn't have social media, but if he did, it would be feeding this. I mean, that's what social media does, right? It surrounds us with people who are speaking the same thing we're speaking, agreeing with the same message we're agreeing with, and it's just reinforcing whatever position. Well, that's what Saul's own heart is doing to him right now. In his raging and in his pity party, notice that no one has a first name. It is the son of Jesse. And he's just turning around to his cronies. And notice that, that he, listen to what is, listen to his language. Every one of you, there's generalizations here, right? Every one of you, all of you have conspired against me. No one discloses to me. None of you is sorry for me. Oh my word. You just hear that? Everyone is against me, he says. Even my own son has stirred up my servant against me. So on a little rabbit trail of study this week, as I was just looking at this and listening to the words of Saul, I, so I, I went back to a, a couple of books that I have on my counter. and then I, So this whole idea of conspiracy. I mean, Paul says, I mean, Saul says, I've got to quit doing that. Saul says, all of you have conspired against me. Psychologists tell us that all of us, all of us in some way are, we're prone to a conspiracy theory. I mean, we are, that's just how we are. But there's some characteristics that I see in Saul here. And I was, I was reading just what are some of these, what is it that, conspiracy theorists and those who believe them tend to be like. Well, here's just a couple of characteristics. Think about Saul as you hear this. They belong to groups that feel they should have more power or influence. Often they follow their, quote, gut feeling, unquote, as they're making decisions. They see connections that then more often than most people do. And those connections, even though they may not exist, are more likely to be what motivates them says they're a little more narcissistic and paranoid than others. <laughs> so do you, you see that in Saul? All of you have conspired against me. No one cares about me. No one is sorry for me. So here's this king in the darkness of his own heart, the darkness of his own conspiracies. And there's no community around Saul. There's... Cronies, but there's no community. There's no community. Oh, wait. There is someone for Saul. Look at, look at what comes next. None of you is sorry for me. 
No one has disclosed to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me. Do you hear that conspiracy? No, Jonathan has not conspired anybody against you, Saul. Then answered Doeg the Edomite. Oh, wait, I remember him. There was a certain man of the servants of Saul there that day detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite. Saul's chief herdsman back there in chapter 21. Well, if that foreshadow steps out of the shadow now, and Doeg the Edomite said, look what it says, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So Saul is not completely alone. He has Doeg the Edomite there. And he steps up and he speaks up. And this rage now just makes itself evident. Look at verse 11. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all of his father's house, the priest who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said to him, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? There's, the conspiracy continues. Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? When you hear that out loud, when you just hear the darkness and the and just the depth of what's going on in the in Saul's soul. You hear it and you go, how ridiculous. In some sense, how pitiful. But how like us sometimes when we are in that dark place. And it's just, woe is me. And he then, this conspiracy reaches out to this priest who has come in and, yes, he has ministered to David. He has given David bread. He did give David a sword, but not any of those reasons that you think about, Saul. And I love the fact that Ahimelech speaks up, and he does so boldly, but yet he does so with humility. Then Ahimelech answered the king in verse 14, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. Hand it to Amalek. He stands up before the king and he says, King, you've got it all wrong. Yeah, I've inquired on God, to God on behalf, but implied in there is I do that for all of my leaders. He can say, Saul, I do that for you. And yes, I have taken care, but there's no one like David. Saul, think for just a second. David is faithful. He's your son-in-law. He's captain over your own bodyguards. And he's honored in your house. What are you doing, king? Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father. I know nothing about your conspiracy, Saul. I know nothing about what you're ranting and raving about. This is what happened. So he's truthful to the king. And what's Saul's response? Verse 16, the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. So this rage now manifests itself in this, this proclamation. I mean, he, that's the verdict. That's the sentence. You will die. And Saul may not lift his hand himself to carry out what's about to take place. But make, make no mistake, he's the means behind it. He's the power behind it. He's the authority behind it. So what is it that takes place? Well, then he turns around to those cronies again. He turns to the guards who are standing beside him in verse 17 and says, Turn and kill the priest of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, 
and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. Do you hear the, do you hear the, the craziness in that? Do you hear the contrast in that? Kill the priest of the Lord. The anointed king that God has put in place over the people is saying this with his own lips. David was praising God and verbalizing the, the cry of his heart. Saul is doing the same thing here, verbalizing the cry of his heart. And it's a cry of murder. It's a cry of anger. It's a cry of just desperation. He turned to those around him and said, strike down the priest. And they have nothing to do with it. They would not touch the anointed of God as we will see they should not. The servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priest of the Lord. And then in verse 18, then the king turned to Doeg, you turn and strike down the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priest, he put to the sword. Both man and woman and child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. That phrase there, those phrases that are listed there in verse 19, is the same phrase that's used. It's the idea of, of, of devoting to destruction. And in, the, and in the mysterious ways of God, as a picture of His holiness... And of the danger of sin and of his desire to see that his people are kept holy. He gave the command to his people as they entered into the promised land quite often to devote to destruction those who were those sinful enemies of God. Saul had been given an instruction by God to devote to destruction the enemies of God. Saul had received that very instruction back in chapter 15. You remember that? But Saul was unwilling to fight God's enemies and devote them to destruction then. But now, even though he was unwilling to do that to the Amalekites, now he's willing to do it to the very priest of God. So not only is Saul not being a warrior for God, he is a warrior against God and against God's people. He is a picture of the Antichrist. He is a picture of those who are opposed to God, God's people, and God's purposes. And instead of being a part of God's holy war, Saul now is at war against God and his people. And it's, it's, a, it's a terrible picture of Doeg carrying this out. You know what else it's a picture of? Up until this point in time... Saul has been a mixture. He's been a little good, a little bad. You know, he'd do something good, then he'd do something bad. No more. Sin works that way, doesn't it? It starts with little baby steps. The slope of sin is very gradual at the beginning. I was talking to the guys up at Caswell Friday night at the prison. And, and there was just an agreement there. None of us woke up one morning making the decision that this is where we want to be. But sin just starts in gradual little declining steps. But soon it's a vortex. Sucking us in. Sucking us in. And that's where Saul is. There's no more a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. It is dark depravity. It is the darkness of sin. And it's gone from bad to worse to worser. <laughs> and now we see the tragedy of it. We see the victims of it. Okay? But it doesn't end on that note. Look at verse 20. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abathar, escaped and fled after David. We're not told how it happened. Some commentators say, well, maybe he was in the tabernacle. Maybe he was there in the place of worship. Maybe he was doing what we don't know what happened. But again, by God's providence, one escapes. Now, it's important for us to remember something. Even as we see this one escape. 
Do you remember what God's judgment was against Eli and his sons? For profaning the offerings of God. For forsaking the ways that God had called them to worship. Do you remember the judgment that God had announced against Eli and his descendants in that priesthood back earlier in 1 Samuel? Turn over there just a second and let's just, it's important we're reminded of this as we see this unfolding before us. This, this judgment has been announced because they had forsaken God. They had not followed God's leading in that. And God pronounces judgment on Eli's household. He says in chapter 2, Those who honor me I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed, he says in verse 30. And then in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man left in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. He says down in verse 35, excuse me, in 33, The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out and to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. Unwittingly, on one hand, David is hearing from the Lord and seeking to please the Lord and do his will. The last thing on Saul's mind is to please the Lord And fulfill his word. But that is exactly what he does. Unwittingly. But under the sovereign providential hand of God. Never forget church. That judgment of God. Is a part of his providential purposes. And as as awful as it may be. God will accomplish that. And he did accomplish that. Through the hand of Doeg the Edomite. According to the order of. Of Saul. God uses the, his own enemies to accomplish his purposes. Just, just good to remember that. And one does escape, and he flees to David. And Abathar told David in verse 21 that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord. And I think it broke David's heart. It says in verse 22, David said to Abathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasion to the death of all the persons of your father's house. You feel the burden on David's shoulders, the angst in his heart. I believe the brokenness there. I have caused this to happen, he says. I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. And yes, on a human level, David, you have a responsibility in that, in that This has all happened because of what happened there. But it's not on you. God is sovereign over that. And look at what David says there. So here's this king. He's still running. And there's safety with him. That makes no sense even as I say it. Verse 23. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. Says the one who is running for his life. Says the one who has had to run from his home and his wife and his best friend and his spiritual mentor. Says the one who has had to flee into the wilderness, into the cave. Says the one who is now running still, even back into Judah. Stay with me and you'll be safe. What? What? Is that not the craziness of the gospel? That when we're with the king, it doesn't matter what the majority may say or do. We're not alone. Is that not the craziness of the gospel that even as we see with David here, in the wilderness running, we're still under the wing of our sovereign God who has purpose that he will finish his purpose in our lives. And even when David is here in the valley, literally of the shadow of death, he is not alone. And those who are with him are safe as well. Don't be afraid, Abathar. No one is going to take my life, David seems to be saying. And with me, you'll be safe. And what a picture that is of our relationship to Jesus. 
Let's just wrap this up with a couple of applications. Here's the first thing I would tell you. Like Abathar and all those other 400 guys who are distressed and in debt and oppressed, like them, run to Jesus. Okay? Listen to me. Run to the King. Run to Christ. Because He is the only one who has said, Come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's the only one who can say to us, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and meek, lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. We can identify with being under pressure, bitter in soul. We can identify with that. And I want a king who understands that. I want a king who can welcome me in my brokenness and guarantee me his safety and protection. Not because of who I am, but because he is the king who has descended and shown me his loving kindness and his steadfast mercy. That's the king I want, right? So run to that king and rest in him. Rest in the God who fulfills his purpose for me. Rest in the God who finishes what he starts in our lives. Rest in the God who says, I'll settle it all. God is for me. Who can be against me? And no matter where I'm at, trusting the Lord, I'm right in the middle of where he has purposed and wants me to be. And we can be sure of this, that he who began a good work in us will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, church, that's, that's walking by faith and not by sight. That's what faith is. It's trusting God in the middle of that circumstance. And, and be confident, okay? So run to this king, rest in this king, and then just be confident in this king. He will... Bring justice. David said that earlier in the Psalm 57. God will not only fulfill his purpose for me, but he says he will fulfill his purpose in my enemies. Even though I lie down among fiery beasts, God will put to shame him who tramples me. We can trust that, church. Do you remember a couple of weeks ago, you may have seen the headline, or it wasn't a headline, it was just a story. There was a runner up in western North Carolina running a trail up there in the Smokies. A trail he ran often. And he rounded a curve on that trail where he ran, and there was a black bear cub in front of him. And he knew what to do. <laughs> he knew to run away from that bear cub. And as he turned to run away, there was the sow, mama bear. And she wore him out. She wore him out. She didn't kill him. You can still find pictures of him. He was torn up. Because you don't want to come between a mama bear and her cub. But listen. If I see the life of David unfolding as I think we should. And as I see the book of Revelation unfolding as indeed it does. You do not want to come between God and his children. He will trample his enemies, and he will trample ours. But we wait. We wait for him to do that. Because our battle right now is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers that are defeated. And John said in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour. And you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. But then John goes on and says, indeed, many Antichrists have come. So you can line up Saul with all those little Antichrists that have come before and since. Opposed to God, opposed to his people. Related to that serpent in Revelation who was ready to devour the child but couldn't. And so that serpent was cast down. And it's just wreaked havoc on the offspring of that woman from now until then. And that's the church. But one day the smoke from her will rise up. And we will sing 
Glorious praise to God for the righteousness of his judgment and wrath. But not yet. Not yet. Until then, he's called us to be ministers of reconciliation. He's called us to welcome those who are distressed and bitter and in debt. And extend to them the same grace he's extended to us. Because that's the kind of king we have. And I don't know about you, but that's the kind of king I want. So if you've never trusted in Jesus today, let me plead with you to do that. To turn from the darkness of your own sin and soul. And just trust in this king. Who welcomes you. Forgives. Heals. And makes whole. And what he starts in you, he will be faithful to complete. Even through the darkness and the valleys. Amen. Let's pray. We bless you and thank you today for your word, Lord. And we thank you for just reminding us again of your steadfast faithfulness. Thank you for your presence with us. No matter what dark place we find ourselves. Thank you that your purposes and your plans for us are good as we have sung. That in the end we will prosper in Christ eternally. And Father, I pray for anyone who's never trusted in that grace that you offer in Christ. Thank you for the amazing grace, Lord, that we see in the gospel. That even though Jesus was rich, for our sake he became poor. He came into our own darkness, bringing the light of God. So Father, I pray you'd open the eyes of someone who the enemy is blinded, their own sin is blinded them, Lord, and let them see that your glory in the face of Jesus And let them run to you, Lord. And help us as your church, Lord, to walk in the light of that countenance. In the hope and in the peace and in the confidence that we have, not in ourselves, but in you. And thank you for that safety. Thank you for that promise. And we thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.